This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, issues, etc. The new left has consistently been anti-humane since the 1960s, and I think they want so deeply to remake the human person in their image that they're willing to run over acres and acres of bodies to get there. You wouldn't tell someone in 1860s U.S. who's fighting for abolition, oh, don't be a culture warrior. No, you'd say that's great. It's good that we should be fighting against the abomination of slavery. But in the same way, you also wouldn't want them to ignore spiritual reality only for the sake of anything political. One of the things that is perhaps becoming more and more obvious in our contemporary context is an awful lot of people who have perhaps sat in church every Sunday of their lives do not always know what God considers pleasing. So our prayer for Israel is not only that the war that is currently ravaging that region would come to an end, but we pray that their war against the Messiah would be brought to an end so that they can be grafted back into the olive tree that they were broken off of because of their unbelief. Colorado trumpet players love issues, etc. When someone lies, they want you to believe that something is true when it isn't. And we as Christians have a very strong sense that we are being lied to by the world around us, by the various movements, feminism and gender movements. But what specifically are those lies and why is it that many Christians continue to believe them? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Tuesday afternoon, the 24th of October. Joining us to talk about our modern culture's lies about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, and modesty, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She's a pastor's wife and homeschool mom, former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, and author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Dr. Butterfield, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Todd. It's wonderful to be here, and please call me Rosaria. You were once a gay rights advocate, a tenured professor of English and Women's Studies at Syracuse. How did you view your mission in life at the time? Right. Well, I believed in my mission in life. That's part of my downfall, as I've always been a true believer. It's just that the object of my belief wasn't always what it should be and what is good for, for me and for the world. But I believed that feminism was a worldview that was a meta-narrative, if you will, that it, it would solve really all of the problems of the world. And that as a lesbian, I believed that I was engaged in a much cleaner and more moral way of sexual expression. And I don't know what to say, except for that I really just believed not just that I was on the right side of history, because I don't even know what that expression means. It seems so crass, really. But that what I was doing was good for the world and for myself. You say that feminism was your worldview and it was your religion. What do you mean? Yeah, it gave me a team and a cause. 
I was raised by a feminist. My mom was a very strong feminist. And while her undiagnosed mental health issues were in so many ways the plague of my childhood and young adulthood, becoming a feminist and a strong feminist in my later adult life my, and, and even my young adult life gave me a way of connecting with my own past. But it also gave me, as I said, a team and a cause. It gave me a sense of belonging to a group of people who were doing good things I believed in the world, and it gave me an objective to strive for. What is intersectionality and how is this tool often used? Yeah, intersectionality is an analytical tool that came of age in the 90s. So really, I kind of coterminous with my own time at a university. Basically, what it believes is that the problem that ails the world is that power is unequally distributed. So any kind of hierarchy is ultimately a form of abuse. And what intersectionality seeks to do is to reimplot power so that the margin becomes the center. Basically, what that looks like is this. The more marginalized statuses you might have in the world, let's say that you're a black, incarcerated, transgender, lesbian, that's four, I think, that would give you significantly more power to speak and value in speaking than the white male lawyer who lives across the street. So it understands problems not as the result of sin and disobedience to God, but rather as just simply a very simple power differential that needs to be reimplotted in order for people to be treated well. And so what ultimately happens, and we've seen it, is that the value of your words, even the virtue of your words, are determined by how many victim statuses you can marshal. And no one can argue with you about whether you are a victim, because all of this is based on your ability to self-ID, to identify who you are, and to have everyone around you pretty much bow to that. What is the bigger framework that that operates on? It sounds like kind of a classic Marxist picture of the world. The world is made up of the oppressed and the oppressors. Right. Yeah, it is. It's a very interesting combination of Marxism and psychoanalysis. So it definitely works in structural ways on a Marxist paradigm that the proletariat must rise up because the ruling class is, is evil and corrupt. And somehow the proletariat won't be corrupt once they become the, you know, the ruling class. That's, that's an interesting quandary there. But also a psychoanalytic paradigm that says that your feelings are your ontological eternal truth. And with that is, of course, a complete rejection of any categories of sin or salvation. Obviously, no such thing as total depravity, no idea that the fall of Adam introduced and imputed a sin nature in the world, a very Rousseauian idea that that man is born good, but the chains are are everywhere out there in society. And so we need to fix all of that. So yeah, it, that's a great question. And it is a very interesting combination of Marxism and psychoanalysis. What is the creation ordinance? Well, the creation ordinance is found in the Bible. And it is in Genesis 1, 
27 and 28. It's right there in the very beginning. And what it tells you is it tells you who you are. It actually tells you your identity. And I'll read it to you because it's always good to read the Bible. And this is right after, of course, God creates man. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so that is the creation ordinance. It tells you that you are made, that all human beings are made in the image of God. And it's a very important thing to notice that it says in and not as. You're made in the image of God, not as the image of God. And so what that means is that you are made in God's image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness of God, not as a, and then fill in whatever sociological category you like, lesbian or trans. In fact, there's no possibility that you can ever say, or that any Christian can say, well, I'm made in the image of God as a lesbian because image bearing comes from God himself who is holy and lesbianism comes from the world, the flesh and the devil. So it's an ordinance which means law, that's what its definition is, and it rests on four matters. The first is understanding that it is authoritative. And the second is that it's relational and noble, man made in God's image, man and woman made for one another. And then the third is that it establishes a gender binary. And a binary is an entity with two portions that make up one whole. A gender binary means that humanity is one entity that exists in one of two parts, male and female. And male and female are eternal categories. So you will be male and female either in the eternity and the terror of hell or in the New Jerusalem. And then finally, it is an ordinance because God is not some kind of like wacky engineer that creates a bridge to nowhere. He creates a pattern with a purpose and it reveals the rules and jobs given to Adam and Eve before the fall, marriage between one man and one woman that features the life-giving blessing of children and work that requires stewarding the earth. And that has not changed. That is in fact, the what image bearing meant in the garden is what image bearing means for every human being today, not just Christians. And part of how we know that as Christians, though, is that the seeds of the gospel are in the garden. So no Adam, no Christ. You can't be simply a New Testament Christian because the what it means to be a saved person, what it means to have your sins forgiven, what it means to be ransomed, what it means to be justified and sanctified and adopted, and eventually in the new new heaven to be glorified, all of that has its meaning by its anchor in the Old Testament. And so that actually, I mean, you didn't ask me this, but I'm just going to jump into this if you don't mind, Todd. One of the things that sometimes people ask me is, why in the world did you write this book? And the reason I wrote the book is simply because I think that idea of the seeds of the gospel are in the garden 
is really lost on people. And often I will hear, especially broad and progressive evangelicals say, come on, Rosaria, lighten up. Why can't we just major on the majors? To which I respond, because we can't agree on what the majors are anymore. If you abandon the Old Testament, you lose your ability to major on the majors. How does the Apostle Paul describe the tragic exchanges in Romans chapter 1? Yeah, that's really key to the things that we're going to be talking about. So I think it would help, again, if we would just open our Bibles to Romans 1. And what you're going to find, especially in 22 to 27, it is an interesting thing. It didn't hit me the first time, you know, or maybe the first 10 times I read it. But the use of that verb exchange happens three times. And there are indeed three exchanges. So allow me to read this, please. Romans chapter one, starting with, let's start with 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So you see here a situation where the Apostle Paul shows us what happens when sin grows. Basically, it's like the life cycle of sin. You know, like you see those life cycle of butterflies on the wall of the science museum. This is the life cycle of sin. And it shows that if sin is not dealt with in its embryonic state, we see this again, by the way, in James 1, then it will become a social and personal and familial and global nightmare. And so the three exchanges are first, Romans one twenty three exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. So that is the exchange of God for the creature. The second exchange is 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So there you have the exchange of truth for lies. And where do lies always kind of baseline? Well, in idolatry. And that's really significant because what we are dealing with right now today, all three of those exchanges, at least in the United States, have been locked down in the Obergefell decision, the Bostock decision, the Dignitary Harm Clause, Title IX, the 14th Amendment. And so you see very clearly here that the LGBTQ plus political movement is the idol of our day. And so that second exchange is about exchanging the truth for a lie that becomes idolatry. And then the third is the exchange of heterosexuality for homosexuality. And a world that grows in its homosexuality is a world under judgment. 
I speak before school boards, which is always fun, not just joking there, but is I think it's necessary. And I speak on the subject of parental rights and the transgender ideology that is in every government school, thanks to the application, the Biden administration's application of the Bostock decision. And uh, when I speak, usually it's, it's during the public comment section, and I'm often speaking after gay rights activists who are so proud of the fact that the public schools in the United States are literally churning out more and more, quote unquote, healthy queer children. So you see the idolatry of the world. You see the people who are, who are lost to their sin, by the way, which was the person I used to be. I see myself in all of that. But you see them glorying and celebrating the fact that the world is growing in its homosexuality, which indeed is part of God's judgment upon us. Dr. Rosario Butterfield is our guest. She's author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. We're discussing our culture's lies about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, and modesty. On the other side, how do we respond to the first lie that homosexuality is normal? Thanks to our beloved on-demand listeners, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality. You can help us climb the charts by subscribing, rating, and reviewing Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us cast Christ's net on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Teaching your student to read should not be complicated. Memoria Press's phonics uses common sense and the classical approach with their First Start Reading program for the most effective and efficient way to teach your child how to read. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Criticism. I just had to call in to respond to this week's installment of Never Trump Drivel from Terry Mattingly. Compliments. I love the interviews and insights because they help me battle the slings and arrows of outrageous theology and practice. Clarification. Is there a point where, without baptism... Infants go to heaven, and after which time they go to hell if they're not baptized? The Issues Etc. Comment Line, 618-223-8382. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about Modern Culture's Lies About Sexuality, Faith, Feminism, Gender Roles, and Modesty. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is our guest. Rosaria, how do we respond to the first lie that homosexuality is normal? 
Right. Well, the way the broad evangelical church has responded to it is to say, let's humanize that. Let's try to understand this from the point of view of people who live as gay men and lesbian women. And, and look, the common grace that I see in the gay rights movement is high. Let's humanize them. Let's just be fine with this. Let's be, as David French would say, let's be pluralists. Let's certainly not press a gospel expectation upon them. And, you know, that's why I think that many, many evangelicals today has, have just become cowards and traitors, because as someone who lived as a lesbian for a decade of my life and was, you know, central and deeply involved in gay rights and in transgender rights and in dealing with an AIDS crisis in New York that was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life, I will tell you that it is miserable to be gay. And when you look at especially the consequences of gay sex upon especially gay men, it is awful. And then when you just look at the reality of what it means to be an unbeliever, it is a terrifying way to live, to live without a, a holy God who created you for a purpose and in whom even the, the difficulties of life, suffering, have meaning and grace. I mean, that's a terrible way to live. And so the way we should respond as Christians is to know that and to not buy the PR campaign that says, love is love, being gay is great, there's no difference, love has the integrity of the lover. You know, we should actually be Christians and we should remember John 8, 31 and 32 and say, no, if you abide in the truth, the truth will set you free. Now, having said that, when you're dealing with a loved one in lost in the sin of homosexuality or transgenderism, you want to be a good member of that person's family, which means that it is totally, I think, appropriate to accept that this is where your loved one is for now, but acceptance should not come with approval. And that is a pretty countercultural thing to say at this particular moment in the United States because of, um, you know, in 2015, the Supreme Court weighed in on the Obergefell decision, which legalized gay marriage in all 50 states. It also included something called a dignitary harm clause. And what that said is that it redefined what legal harm meant. And it said that you are harming a person who identifies in the LGBTQ rainbow coalition if you fail to affirm their identity. And so that explains in part why people are losing their jobs for not using transgender pronouns or why people are losing their jobs for not putting rainbow flags on their Facebook page or something like that. So what you should do is you should know what the truth is and you should not be blackmailed by the lies that the LGBTQ plus movement somehow, some way has convinced the world about and also has convinced many aspects of the visible evangelical church. What is gay Christianity? Gay Christianity is the belief that being gay is immutable, which is actually an attribute of God that is now being used 
to describe man, which is a sign of idolatry also. It means that you are born gay, that is who you are, and that it is morally neutral. Being born gay is like being born left-handed or red-haired, that there's no moral imperative to this. And furthermore, that you can't change. Greg Johnson in his book, Still Time to Care, said 99.9% .9 of the time, which you know what, when anybody pulls out a statistic that ridiculous and doesn't cite his sources, you know something fishy is going on. But he says people never change. Gay is not something that changes. And so there are different arms, if you will, of gay Christianity. One is called side A, and they are quote unquote affirming. What that means is that they believe that it is necessary and good for people who identify as gay to be married and to have all of the rights and privileges of marriage. And then you have a different side, which is side B, and they believe that while homosexuality is, they would call it a disorder, a disordered affection. They wouldn't go so far as to call it a sin, which is what the Bible would call it. They would call it a disordered affection. And they would say, what you need to do is be celibate. Just don't have sex. But now, what's interesting to me about side B, gay Christianity, is many people in the conservative church have falsely understood them, that movement, to be orthodox and conservative because it isn't practicing or says it's not practicing a form of sexual engagement. But God says that it is a sin not only to act on that which you desire that he calls sin, but also to simply desire it. The whole 10th commandment is based on coveting Coveting is not necessarily, in fact, it's just not. It's not a physical action. It's a motion of the heart. And so this idea that I'm still gay, you'll always be gay, is just not biblically tenable. What we see in both Romans 1 and James 1 is that you will become who or what you worship. In other words, like the way that a theologian might say it is, it might use the word telos, we become the object of our desires. So if you assume that you will always be gay, and then your telos is looking at your feelings, not looking at God, it's absolutely upside down and wrong. So same-sex desires, just like any other desire that God calls sin, needs to be starved. All right, you need to mortify your desires and you need to then grow in Christ. And it's a very strange idea that the ontology of your personhood would be rooted in something that God calls sin. It again, if you go back to the creation ordinance, that makes no sense of all. And I think the only reason that people have been convinced of this is because we have abandoned, we've, we've really failed to understand the Bible as a unified biblical revelation. And when you abandon the Old Testament, you really do lose really the why and the how. You lose the ability to go to battle against your sin. And that's one of the saddest things for me as a person who lived as a lesbian woman for years. That was not an easy sin to mortify. It wasn't at all. I mean, no sin of the flesh is, no sexual sin is. 
But what I would say is this, one of the most important things a mature Christian can learn to do is how to hate your sin without hating yourself. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7. Why do I do what I don't want to do? He says, and then he doesn't say, but I can't help it because this is me. He says, no, it's the law of sin in me. And he knows he has to go to war against it. And so do we. But gay Christianity says, no, gay is morally neutral. It's just what you do with it. And that's a heresy. And I would go so far as to say that people who would believe that you can be a gay Christian are really quite quite in severe error, very dangerous error, the kind of error that your salvation might be at stake if you don't get it right. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is our guest, author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. When we come back, the second lie, being a spiritual person, it's kinder than being a biblical Christian. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, he created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and his word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org schools. Where Christianity meets culture, you're listening to Issues Etc. Join Lutherans for Life and Why for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 18th through Saturday, January 20th for the 2024 Why for Life Free Conference. Registration is open through December 15th. Learn more at why4life.org. Great events, speakers, and social time. The 2024 Why for Life Free Conference, January 18th through the 20th in Washington, D.C., Y4Life.org. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Lutherans for Life equips Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Find out about their work and check out their free pro-life resources at lutheransforlife.org. Dot org, lutheransforlife.org. We're talking about modern culture and its lies about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, 
and modesty. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is our guest. She's author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Rosaria, the second lie is that being a spiritual person is kinder than being a biblical Christian. What does that mean? Yeah, well, I'm working here with some of the material that, that comes out of Truth Exchange, Dr. Peter Jones. And you see it everywhere, even within Christianity. You would see it on a coexist bumper sticker that says, well, let's just add a little Jesus to a little bit of Buddha and to that kind of thing. You also would see it in the quote unquote Christians who would say things like, what's your anagram? And let's work from that. But basically what you see with pagan spirituality is you see a non-binary spirituality, basically. It says that God and man are one, and we are going to worship and serve the creation as divine, and all distinctions and hierarchies must be eliminated. And through a kind of enlightenment and peacemaking with the world, we are also going to become divine. And then in a binary, which is indeed a Christian faith, uh, we worship and serve the eternal personal creator of all things, God himself. And God alone is divine, and he is distinct from his creation. And yet through his mercy, he gave us his only begotten son, Jesus. And if you are in loving communion with Jesus, then you have a mediatorial relationship with God. And so what you get when you take your quote unquote Christian faith and you say, but it just seems harsh. It's really asking people to die to sin, to turn, to flee from sin. It's really, it's uncomfortable. It asks me to be a voice crying in the wilderness. What you see is a really perverted idea of Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. Morality is relativized by any kind of personal or social convention. Honesty means being true to your inner commitments. If it means committing adultery, go for it. Acceptable models of sexuality and family are combined in whatever way people feel makes sense to them. Marriage is you know, functionally indistinguishable from other forms of, of sinful cohab you know, cohabitation. And it's just bizarre, but motherhood is literally celebrated in the same breath with abortion on demand. And so biblical faith is meant to set you apart. And if it doesn't, if you aren't set apart from the world, you might be engaging in a kind of paganized Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. We are a set apart people and God has called us to be holy. And God has also called us to obeying the law of God as a response to our love for God. You can't save yourself through your works, but if you don't have good fruit, there's no reason to assume that your heart has been changed. Now, is it hard? Of course it's hard. Do you stumble? Yeah, I do all the time, but we repent and we believe. And the Puritan Thomas Watson, who wrote a wonderful book called The Doctrine of Repentance, says repentance is so important to saving faith that you can't see it into a person's heart, of course. So you can't see what they believe, but you can see if they repent. And if you haven't seen repentance, you have no reason to believe 
that you have faith. How at the time did you you believe yourself to be more merciful than God himself? Yeah. So that's an expression that I would use now, you know, the 61-year-old Rosaria looking back on the 20 to 30-year-old Rosaria. And basically what it means to be more merciful than God is to believe that God's commands are burdensome and some people should not be held to them. And that's what I believed. And that's what a lot of people believe. That's what Andy Stanley believes, apparently, when he said that some people should be gay married because they just can't bear the commands of God. Well, but the Bible says that God's commands are not burdensome. So if they are burdensome, then that's a big problem. That means that you have a big error in understanding what your reasonable service is in response to the God who died for you. So I, I would just say that it, you know, to believe you're more merciful than God is to believe that the commands of God are, are just too hard for some people. I'm a literature teacher and I've just finished teaching Dante's Inferno. And it's an interesting thing when Dante, the character, starts out in his journey through hell, followed by his idle poet Virgil, which is so funny, he just feels really sorry for the people who are in hell. I mean, he just feels such pity for them that he swoons and he faints and Virgil has to pick him up and carry him and get him moving again. And, you know, by the end, as Dante himself learns to grow in his own faith, he stops pitying the souls in hell. And so that's a good word for Christians. You write about reparative therapy for LGBTQ people. What convinced you that this therapy wasn't actually harming people? Right. In fact, the whole book, the book, The Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, begins with a number of things that I needed to publicly repent of because I had said sinful things and I had said them publicly and I had written them in books that sold hundreds of thousands of copies. And that means I said them publicly and loudly a lot of times. And so I needed to repent of those. One was my false belief that what is called reparative therapy is harmful. Now, Reparative therapy is kind of a baggy category, but basically any change allowing therapy, any therapy, any way of engaging a person at the level of personal interaction that would call them to put aside their homosexual desires and maybe even lead them to embracing and seeing the beauty of the creation ordinance, and even seeing the way that they themselves could be part of that. So that change from a homosexual, say a homosexual relationship to living in a heterosexual relationship happily and joyfully and without regret, I would be an example of someone who has experienced that kind of a journey. Now, I did not go to therapy, but my homosexuality was not the cause of trauma. But if it was, I might have needed therapy to help me work through the trauma that was done against me and why my body and my mind were responding to that trauma by adding homosexual sin to my traumatic response. And so there are two things that convinced me that reparative therapy is not harmful and should not be something that Christians should avoid or despise as I did. One was 
you know, sin makes more work for all of us. There are many roads to the sin of homosexuality and people who are traumatized sexually should not be denied therapy anymore than anybody else should. My husband and I have adopted children. Two of the children that we adopted came out of foster care at the age of 16. I have spent so many hours sitting in waiting rooms while children are getting therapy appointments, I could knit whole sweaters in them. And I just thought, how hypocritical of you, Rosaria? Why would you deny counseling for people who need it? But the second was uh, work that Dr. Andre von Maul published in the Christian Medical and Dental Association newsletter that came from various studies, large studies, that showed that people who engaged, who participated in reparative therapy, but at the end of the day, their sexual orientation desires did not change enough to be considered, quote unquote, a success. That even those people, when studied, did not say that they were harmed by the therapy. They grew closer to God. They grew closer to the understanding of why God made them men or women, and they weren't harmed by it. And so that was the big deal for me. I always thought that when people were in a therapy and they didn't meet the goals that they wanted, that they would have been harmed in the process. And you know, I have dear friends who are therapists who just said to me, Rosario, why were you so stupid? I mean, I have a friend who, you know, who says, do you realize that most of my clients will have goals for therapy that they won't meet? I, I mean, th they'll meet them a little bit, but they won't check off that box entirely because trauma goes deep, sinful patterns go deep, and it takes a long time. So what ultimately convinced me is the fact that people were not harmed by it. And then when I realized, well, who are the people who are anti-reparative therapy? Ah, well, they're tyrannical governments like Canada right now, trying to erect laws that would prohibit you from even proclaiming biblical truth as considered to be harmful, even looking at a six-year prison sentence for doing such a thing. So it also helped to, for me to just kind of look around and see, well, who are the people who are believing that it's harmful to send someone to a change-allowing therapy? Ah, they're the tyrants of this new world order. I want nothing to do with that. But there's also a theological issue at stake here that I think is very, very important. If you are experiencing sinful desires, God does not tell you to pray those desires away. He just doesn't. He doesn't say, please pray to me that I will take away these desires and then I will take away these desires. That's not how it works. If you are desiring something that God hates, you are called to repent. That means to own it, to say, this was my desire, I sinned, I was wrong, please forgive me. And then each and every time that you sin in this way, you are called to go to battle with that sin. Is it a hundred times a day? Then do it. Is it a hundred times an hour? Then do it. And the more that you starve your sin of your pitying tears, the more that you are going to experience victory over it. So when people say, well, I prayed the gay away, but God didn't answer, maybe that's because God doesn't ask you to pray the gay away. God asks you to repent of your sin and then tells you that he is faithful to forgive you and to give you victory 
and release. We're talking with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age. Up next, has feminism been good for the world and the church? The Church's Music from the 20th Century The 17th Century The 11th Century century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Providing artillery support for the church militant on the front lines, you're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the Master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth, freedom, vocation. Concordia University, Chicago. cuchicago.edu Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about our culture's lies about sexuality, faith, feminism, gender roles, and modesty. Dr. Rosario Butterfield is our guest. Rosario, has feminism been good for the world and the church? No, it really hasn't. And the reason that it hasn't, in fact, you might even say that so many of the issues that I talk about in this book, The Five Lies, what connects all of the five lies is this idea that the world is offering a totally different anthropology, a totally different idea of what it means to be human than what the Bible offers. And feminism introduced a new idea about personhood, and that was this idea that sex and gender are different. And Uh, Biblically speaking, sex and gender are not different for the reasons I think I said earlier in our podcast, because God is not some mad engineer who would build a bridge to nowhere. So if God designed you as a woman, that pattern has a purpose. And if God designed you as a man, 
then that pattern had a purpose. Now, what feminism did was it introduced gender as a new category of personhood. And it did that in part so that women could have, quote unquote, control over their bodies, over their marriages, over their careers. And you, you might hear me saying this and saying, well, but Rosaria, what's wrong with that? Well, in a marriage, you are called to be one flesh. And do women work outside the home in biblical marriages? Yeah, many of them do. I do. But it's different to have a job outside the home that your husband approves of and that that really blesses the home, that, that nurtures it, sort of in the Proverbs 31 woman style. That's really different than saying, I have my rights. I can do whatever I want. My career is my calling. And what you really saw in feminism was that this sex-gender distinction was meant to really defend women against basically progeny and patriarchy, babies and men. What's so interesting to me is that feminism is completely dead in the world. Transgenderism killed it. We don't have Title IX. And what I mean by that, the reason we don't have Title IX is that, quote unquote, transgender men can now participate in women's sports and be in women's locker rooms. And that has caused all kinds of havoc. And what I think it's really shown to us is that if you don't like biblical patriarchy, what does transgender patriarchy do for you? Do you like that? I don't think so. So the only place that I see that feminism is alive and well is in the evangelical church, which simply says to me that evangelicalism sometimes just lags behind the world rather than really confronts the world with problems. So to introduce gender as a new category of personhood that's totally separate from a biological category of sex is usually done because it pursues different sexual identities or even different callings in the world. And what we know to be true, scripturally speaking, especially from Genesis, but it's other places as well. Romans 1 would be one of those other places, James 3, that what we see is that this is unnatural to the creation order and it's harmful for the purposes for which God made us. So do women have rights? Yes. And in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ tells you that. Do women have responsible rights as citizens in the world? Absolutely. One of the safest ways to protect yourself as a woman in the world, single or married, is to be a member of a Bible-believing church where if there are problems, you can call the elders and your pastor. And if your pastor and the elders are the problems, you can call the cops. You're not prohibited from doing that. But this idea that somehow the Bible needs a feminist rescue and the church is filled with patriarchal abusers if feminism doesn't somehow constrain them and control them is just a lie. What we need is biblical truth to commandeer our hearts and our homes and our churches. And we don't need any worldly idea to offer commendations or rescue. How is feminism aimed directly at biblical male headship? Well, in the church, it has denied those scripture verses which declare that men are indeed leaders of the church. So I'm thinking of Titus and, and Timothy. 
one of the reasons that it does so is it sees those verses as heavily context laden. And that would not be a hermeneutic that values biblical inerrancy, and it would not be a hermeneutic in, that would value what my own denomination would see as a subordinate standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, and one of the things that that hermeneutic does is it says that you can have a calling that isn't rooted in creation. Now, you can have jobs that aren't rooted in creation. You can have tasks, but a calling is rooted in creation. You're called to be a man. You're called to be a woman. If God calls you to be a wife, then he calls you to be submitted to your husband. And so what we've really seen is any kind of a, a hermeneutic that separates the creation mandate from new callings and, and habits, those are the ones that would suggest that your personal gifts somehow allow you to reinvent what the Bible says for everyone. And that's just not true. But one of the things you've also that you also see are those churches, and I'm thinking now of mainline churches, and I'm also thinking of broad evangelical large mega churches that have really taken up this false hermeneutic that bestows upon women the right to be pastors and elders. What you see is that's just the gateway to gay Christianity not because of a slippery slope argument, but because of the false hermeneutic that it introduces in applying what it means to be the church in the world. Dr. Rosaria Butterfield is a pastor's wife and homeschool mom, former professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University and author of the new book, Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age, Tomorrow on Issues, Etc. It's part two of our conversation with Dr. Butterfield. We'll discuss homosexuality, transgenderism, and modesty. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of his family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. The blood of Christ. God's Son cleanses us from all sin, all sin. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 9 Central, 10 Eastern.
8 Mountain, and 7 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. This is Jeff Schwartz, General Manager of Lutheran Public Radio, with a message for listeners in the Mountain and Pacific time zones. We pledge to have Issues Etc. podcasts posted daily, no later than 5 p.m. Mountain, 4 p.m. Pacific. This will allow you to download and listen to the latest Issues Etc. podcast weekdays during your evening commute. Again, if you live in the Mountain or Pacific time zone, download Issues Etc. before you leave work and listen during your drive home.